Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full of I think I'm full Shit, I was so full of Yeah, I was so full of I think I'm full of I think you're full of I think you're full of Shit Hello everyone and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I am your prophet of rage, Mark Bigney, and with me is the hype machine, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. We took a week off, or rather, I took a week off. Thanks, as everyone, for your patience and support. We are back with a mini-episode. I am told that in this business, if you speak your mind and say things people don't like, you might get smacked in the face, so we'll try to avoid that. We'll see what happens. But this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We are going to talk about the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Aurus. That is the game we reviewed a year ago. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, why it doesn't matter, and then we're going to be done. No topic, Full no stop. review this week. This is efficiency, in and out, uh, largely premised by the fact that I just got back home yesterday, and so I'm not really in a position to do a full episode, so I'm sorry, but we figured that this would be better than nothing. I think that's what they call like a drive-by, you just sort of like... Hit them with the big stuff, and then keep going. So violent. Clearly I was right. Discourse is all about violence. How we're going to roll today. Yeah, roll. So, so the Mark, so Mark, the game we reviewed exactly one year ago, it was so poignant, actually. It was so weird that I just looked this up about an hour ago, and it was like, oh my, this Versailles 1919, because I literally have just finished watching this huge document, documentary. It's called The First World War. It's on Prime, and I was just, after I had finished it, I was like, man, I really want to replay this game. I hope Mark still has it. And then sure enough, it just pops up on the Eurus, and it was like, man, it was meant to be. I 100% still have Versailles 1919. I've been thinking about it fairly regularly. I really want to play it again. As we commented during the review, it really hits all the things that I like in historical war games in that you get a little bit of light role play of people being awful. Because the big takeaway of, of Versailles 1919 was a whole bunch of people who didn't know what they were doing, divvying up the world and ruining it in the process. And it's got negotiation. It's got lovely tempo manipulation in terms of how to table issues. Lovely bit of historical flavor, but still accessible and a reasonably quick game at about 120 minutes, which is somewhat of a rarity for GMT Games core offerings. I really love Versailles 1919. I, I don't remember you having this degree of fondness for it. Like, none? No, I, I didn't like it. It was a GMT game. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? I didn't know that. No, no, I'm just saying I didn't have, I didn't know too much of the of the material, all of the cards that came up. I was fond of the First World War, but that particular, you know, the whole treaty. Whoa, 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 and... slow down, slow down. I, I think the official line is that we didn't like the First World War, that it was a bit of a mistake. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's what I meant to say. Oh my goodness. Um. So yes, and, and you know, look, uh, no... Looking back on it, you know, they at the time had no idea that this was obviously going to lead to the Second World War. Us already knowing it, it's sort of like a little tongue-in-cheek in some parts. Yep. And 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 now understanding 
what everyone had in stake. You know, obviously Britain was to wanted full control of, of all their commonwealth, of all their little communities. They had promised them all independence for joining in the war. It was such a complete world war, you know, that. Oh, it was know, a world war. If you, have right. a, if you have a chance to watch this documentary, it is quite amazing how everyone just took the opportunity to try to land grab what they wanted to, you know, finish old rivalries, to do whatever they wanted to do. It was a crazy time and then they had to somehow make up this document in order to appease everyone. Crazy. And set set up a new world order. I I would also recommend, loathe though I may be, to recommend podcasts that are not our own. The Martyr Made podcast did an entire episode about the Sykes-Picot agreement and the fallout thereof. I highly recommend it. I think it adequately captures the absurdity of the situation. Uh, Not to make light of it. Uh, You know, it's absurd and terrible. And that is one of the things that Versailles gamifies very well. Just the ridiculousness of the horse trading that's going on in a truly epically morose way that deals with the enormity of the subject. Well, nonetheless, being a very brisk negotiation game. So in other words, it's got all the things I like. As I say, I haven't True. played Versailles since we reviewed it, but I've been th- I've been thinking about it and I've been wanting to play it ever since we st- we talked about it. And just a quick call back to that documentary. If you're into maps and and everything talking about everything in like a in the particular on a chronological order this has all of those things that's why i like this usually i you know they jump all over the place and they don't really specify what they're talking about they just go on about stuff that shows you on the map the advancement of all the armies they did everything great documentary on prime uh prime did not sponsor this episode <laughs> And that is Versailles 1919, designed by venerable game designers Jeff Engelstein and Mark Herman, put up by GMT Games in 2020. And now on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play over the course of the past two weeks? Mark, I played this new game called Creature Comforts. It is a worker placement game, but it has this hook that is new. It's sort of like a gambling sort of mechanism where you're going to be using six dice to do four actions. So you are rolling two dice, which are your family dice, and then you're placing out your four workers. And everyone does all of this at the same time. So you see what everyone's two dice are. Everyone's throwing the workers out on all these places at the same time. Then you roll the four community dice after everyone's placed the workers. And so you're sort of hoping that certain dice pips will come up. You can see the two dice that you have, and you sort of gamble on what's going to come up. And you have a little bit of manipulation because if you gamble poorly in an earlier turn, then you're going to get these lesson learned tokens and you can manipulate the (laughs) dice that way. But you you don't actually change the dice. You just put the token on top of it to show because everyone needs to use these dice. And that's sort of what slows the game down because it's so fast otherwise. Everyone rolls dice. Everyone plays workers super fast. Now... We stop as we, you know, now I'm going to use these four dice and I do these actions and then I pass the four dice to the next player and they do all their actions. So that really slows the game down. But other than that, it's interesting because all of the action spaces sort of uh, change up every round in different ways. There's a, you know, a traveler that comes, all the turn mechanism at the top are these two giant cards that are four different action spaces. They turn up. And that sort of marks the turns of the game. There's the river dial that turns. So that's kind of interesting. But speaking of all that, Mark, 
you know, they have all these things. It's called the forest, the meadow, the valley, the river, the inn, the owl's nest. Why am I talking about all these areas? Because there's cards in the game that refer to all these different action space areas, but they're not marked on the map. Ooh. So it's like, oh, how, you know, place three workers in the river. And it's like, well, what's the river? And then you're in the rule book. Okay, well, those four spaces over there, that's what they consider the river. And it's like, oh, really? Yikes. Anyway, the other thing about the cards that are interesting, like I said, the traveler, it's this giant card. It's like this person that shows up to the inn every turn. It's a new type of animal and it sort of changes the gameplay up. It like make, might let you trade goods or do some funky co-op thing with each other. But he, you know, he does different actions. You can trade different goods with them. Very interesting. It's a little like Everdale where you're trying to play cards out and some of them synergize with each other. Like it's like, oh, I have ice skates. And if I play the the cozy wool socks, well, then those ice skates are worth more and the cozy socks are worth more. And they're both winter cards. So they're going to trigger this other card that says if I have four winter cards out, then I get points. So it's interesting that way. Improvement cards. The game lasts a little long. They have a variant in the rule book that says you can take out some of the season cards. I, I would play it the other way around i would take the season cards out and if you want to punish yourself for whatever reason then you can play the extended game and play Hmm. with all of the season cards the game is also very solitarish because you can't really manipulate what other people are doing like i said the traveler cards sort of change up you know a little bit of interaction there but not much some of the improvements that i said you could take before other people do a little bit of that not only that the scoreboard is on the back of your player board. So you keep track at the end of the game, you track your own score by yourself as well. So not a big scoreboard where everyone sort of sees everyone advance Hmm. up and, you know, sort of like a shared experience. It's sort of like, okay, calculate your score. And then you sort of announce it at the end. Not a big deal, but it's the fact that it's at another compiled solitaire thing on top of I hear you. It's a strange component choice that really doubles down on a sense of alienation from what your fellow players are doing. Exactly. Can we circle back to these lessons learned tokens, though? Is that really what they're called? I am 99% sure. So you roll the dice, you roll badly, and you learn lessons. And the lessons you learn are not avoid gambling, but rather, here's how you can cheat with dice. Gamble better. Yeah, okay. Is this what we're teaching our our young woodland creatures, Walker? I should should hope so. How else are they going to make money? (laughs) So this is uh, designed by Roberta Taylor and put out by... Kids Game Table Board Games. Creature Comforts. You taught me Icky, which I personally think that games should have a little bit greater sense of self-confidence. I wouldn't call it Icky. At best, it was only a little bit yucky. And this is designed by Kuti Yamada. This is a reprint recently put out by Désolé, nous sommes français, otherwise known as Sorry, We Are French. But it was originally published, as Walker would probably say, in the deep, dark ages, in the distant recesses of history, i.e. 2015. The before time. The before times. <laughs> well, I mean, that is literally the before times. But <laughs> Icky is a very interesting rondel game where players are putting out the action spaces, not entirely unlike what is pitched as one of the key hooks of Great Western Trail. Great Western Trail, though, I never really felt like it delivered on this premise. I never felt like I was building a rondel out 
as we were playing because it's just one element in many, many, many subsystems, as is typical in an, in an Alexander Pfister game. Iki is much more streamlined. It is much, much more about these action spaces and about whether your opponents are going to be triggering your action spaces. Sometimes you want them to, sometimes you don't. About whether your action spaces are going to age out, whether you can pay to maintain your action spaces, etc. I wish there was a little bit greater control over how and when the your opponents would be likely to activate them. If there were some greater grit in the economy whereby I could I could know that my opponent desperately needed a certain kind of resource and I could use that to my advantage to help encourage them to come visit my spaces or vice versa. This is a minor problem though. Mostly I enjoyed running around the town and trying to activate things. There's this notion of things possibly burning down based on fire but mostly your fire control also feeds into turn order, which is very consequential, so I didn't object to that element at all, contrary to the expectations of the table. I felt that there was a little bit of randomness in there, but it didn't really uh, bother me too much. What, what My primary complaint about Icky was that it was probably about 33% longer than I would have liked it to have been. Because fundamentally, it's a very simple game where you take 12 actions around this rondel, and you're trying to build up various people. And there's not a whole lot of variety of what you're doing turn on turn. You buy a card or not, you go and activate a space, there you go, you do this 12 times over the course of the game. And thus expressed, you would, you would expect it to be like 45 to 60 minutes, but in our game it was more like 90. First I want to address manipulating the whether people are going to use your buildings or not. Sock it to me. It, if you are later in the turn, you know exactly the number of spaces people are going to move. So you can sort of put your stalls where they're going to move and hope they're going to use them. I know it's this is not huge, but it is a way. The other, you know the main actions of the stalls that they're going to go. So you can sort of put them in the popular ones like rice or in the fish or you, you sort of know what they're going for. If someone's looking to get all the fish or looking to get some pipes, then you know they're probably going to hit those buildings eventually and you can sort of seed those areas. That part, not so huge, but a little bit. So they're not great examples, but there is a little bit of control. No, you're absolutely right. I think these are the kind of insights that somebody who's played the game several times would absolutely be able to see. And thank you very much for enlightening me from my perspective of having only played the game once. This, I think, is valuable. And were I to play Icky again, I would absolutely start trying to look at that. I guess another way to say what I'm saying is I wish the economy had a little bit more grit to it. I wish that you could see a little bit more in terms of, well, I need these resources in order to survive, or I'm really leaning on these resources. As it is, most of the time I felt that the actions were just one-offs. I wasn't building towards any sort of grander strategy or any kind of engine or synergy at all, which isn't a necessity for a game like this, but it would have helped inform what other people were doing in terms of seeding the rondel. Similarly, the whole notion of building buildings, which of course is contractually obligated in almost all Euro-style games like this, felt a little bit strange in that you might only have to do a couple of things out of your way, like once you go get wood, and then another time you go get gold, and then suddenly you buy this one building that's worth a massive quantity of points. I was actually somewhat surprised that you didn't object to the scoring mechanisms, in that it's one of those games where the overwhelming bulk of points do seem to come in at the end of the game, which again leans into my notion that the economy wasn't as, as detailed as I, I, I hoped it would. Now, granted, this isn't secret scoring, which I realize is your particular 
particular bugbear. But nonetheless, it is the case that most of the actions that you're doing struck me as relatively unsatisfying. Uh, long story short, I felt that the, the core mechanism was fascinating, but it was insert, but it was serviced by a series of cards that were mostly just variations on a theme. And I wish there was a little bit more grit, a little bit more detail, a little bit. Uh, greater ability to anticipate or respond to the economic needs of either the table or specific opponents in a game of Icky. Uh, especially since that, I think, would have made the game bear its length a lot better. As it is, I enjoyed playing Icky. It was very, very enjoyable. And had it been 45 to 60 minutes, I would be chomping at the bit to go back to it. As it is, I would happily play again. I agree that it does, for what you get to do, the game seems to go a little bit long. But there are two sort of mechanisms in the game that I'm not sure would develop fully if it wasn't a little bit longer. I'm not saying that it needs to be as long as it is, but I'm wondering if this is why they made it a little bit longer. One is your uh, workers gaining experience and putting out the buildings, right? And sort of getting the sense of that meaning something and, and accomplishing that sort of goal. And the second is at the end of every round, there's a synergy bonus of having buildings out in different areas. And if, and if you don't have a chance to get them out there and do that, would it make that whole sort of interesting mechanism pointless as well? I'm not talking primarily about the number of rounds. I'm just saying that if I'm going to play a game that's 90 minutes and I look back and I think that I've just done 12 actions, each of which were very, very simple, and I don't think that anybody took too long on their turns, and I don't think I took too long on my turns, I kind of wonder where it all went. I don't feel like I built towards anything. I did 12 little things and then the game's over. And rather than it taking the time that I thought it would, a game of Icky is, is a little bit longer. That, that's all I'm getting at. I, I think that as it is, the retirement elements, the experience elements, the fire elements, they are well calibrated to the number of rounds that are in a game of Icky. That's not my complaint. And I realize full well that if you wanted to tinker with the number of rounds in the game, you would, of course, have to change the, vari the variables that go on in the economy, of course. I'm not suggesting some sort of facile variant where you just chop off four rounds off the end or add four rounds to the end. Anyway, I enjoyed Icky. I, I liked it. I wish that the their approach to building the game board, building the rondel would be used in other games. I think it was very novel and well done. Uh, I just don't necessarily think that it was married to the most interesting economic model. And so that was Icky by Kuti Yamada, published by Sorry We Are French. We went back to the Red Cathedral, designed by Isara C. and Senji S., published by Devier Games. And we had a problem with this game last time we played it, whereas we felt as though rolling the dice gave more opportunity to the next player, that sometimes the dice weren't there that you needed, and so you took a suboptimal move, which only set someone up for uh, getting a better result. And I felt this game that we played, a lot, people, a lot more people were spending money to roll the dice in order to to try to force what they wanted. Like they didn't see the dice and they didn't want someone else to get that advantage. So they re-rolled the dice. There was a little more looking ahead to see what other people were going to get and stopping that from happening. Not saying it was a fix, but it seemed as though it worked itself out a little bit better. And there's just so much game in this little box. Still really enjoyed playing it. You're choosing a die, moving it as many pips as it is, and then you're getting resources on this space that you land on, uh, depending on how many dice are there now. And then you're building these buildings, you're, you're flushing out your player board, tons going on, really enjoy Red Cathedral, lots of different stuff going on there. 
I got to try Switch and Signal. I'd been meaning to try Switch and Signal for a while, primarily because it is a David Thompson design, and a month without David Thompson is a mistake. David Thompson published this cooperative train game, and the way I would describe it is it's kind of like a cooperative roll-and-move game where your primary levers are influencing how the board looks. It's called Switch and Signal because mostly what you do in the game is you manipulate what switches and signals allow various trains to move. There are a whole bunch of roadblocks effectively along the tracks, and you have to play cards in order to manipulate where the trains will go. Because when trains move, you don't really have much choice as to how they move. It is dictated by the lay of the board. So you're basically setting up the board state and then rolling dice to move trains a certain value. I was really, really pleasantly surprised by Switch and Signal. I came in with relatively low expectations despite the pedigree of David Thompson, primarily because I I, I, I was easily manipulated. I was like a, a young high school boy. Uh, the, peer, the peer group got to me, and, and people said that it was relatively light on decisions, and I agree that it's a light game, but I found the puzzle of how to get trains to where you wanted to go fascinating, primarily because... Switch and Signal does a little bit of a variation on the standard pandemic formula, namely draw the bad card, do some actions, draw the bad card, do some actions. Here, the quote-unquote bad card is largely about how the trains move. And if the board isn't set up properly in Switch and Signal, trains moving is dangerous. Trains moving is actually bad. There's actually the possibility of trains running into each other. And that's not good. You don't want that to happen. That is a bad thing. Trains could run into cities. That is also a bad thing if the city isn't ready for them. You don't want that to happen. And But by the same token, you need those cards that you pull before your actions to drive the trains to their ultimate destinations or you will run out of time. See, I outsmarted myself, Walker. I engaged in a very, very clever strategy, and that is having the slowest trains have to travel the greatest distance. This is what we call clever. So when I ran out of time at the end of the game, it was hardly a shocker. I really should have done a better job. But the thing is, you have to use the fast trains, but the fast trains are risky because more of their route have to be open for them as they're traveling. It's subtle trade-offs like this that, that are uh, executed within a very, very simple rule set. I thoroughly enjoyed Switch and Signal. It was great. One of the key criticisms that you see is for people who have the so-called quarterbacking problem, but this is not a sports podcast, Walker, so we're not going to call it the quarterbacking problem. We're going to call it the alpha gamer or the sock puppet problem. Does it do anything to address those concerns? Nope. But our stated position here on this podcast is that is a group problem more than a game problem. But if, you know, caveat emptor, if that is a thing that you prefer not to have in your games, Switch and Signal doesn't do anything in order to privatize the information sphere or privatize the decision the decision sphere to do much. I don't mind this format of cooperative game. I did play it solo, though. It was very, very quick, very, very approachable in terms of rule set. I think that this is something that I would absolutely pull out with more devoted hobby gamers as well. I had a great time with Switch and Signal, and I look forward to trying it some more. Sounds good. And you made me think about quarterbacking, Mark. Like, why did they come up with – maybe because it's a board game term and they have no idea what quarterbacking does. <laughs> I, I couldn't see, say. because the, the quarterback goes out and it's his job to tell everyone what to do – so I guess that part is part of it. But if he didn't, then it would be chaos. And that's his job. <laughs> it's what he's supposed to do. Walker, are you seriously taking and time the game wouldn't make any out of our sense? podcast to stand up for jocks? 
I'm no, I'm just I'm not standing up for them. I'm just trying to understand how the term quarterbacking happened. Like that front part makes sense. But... I have I have nothing against jocks. Some of my best friends are jocks, but they can take care of themselves. It's true. Mark, we've got some review copies of Core Worlds, a new Core World expansion, and a Core Worlds brand new board game uh, called Core Worlds Empires. Now, Mark, did you look into the new Core Worlds expansion very much? My understanding is that the new Core Worlds expansion was the solo deck. Wow. See, you looked into it more than I did. (laughs) I just saw saw Core Worlds expansion and clicked yes. You see, I just assumed. And then when we said, let's play Core Worlds now that we have a new expansion, and then I opened the rulebook to see, you know, what all the new stuff is that we're going to get in our Core Worlds game, I was like, oh, this is for the solo people. Wow. But it wasn't a complete loss, Mark, because included in the new uh, Core Worlds solo boxes, all of the promo cards that have ever come out for Core Worlds. So there was, in fact, tons of new content for our Core Worlds game that we played. Still fantastic deck building game. If you want to try something new and interesting and uh, tons of art, tons of repeatability, you'll be amazed at how giant these different decks are and you only get to skim the top of each one so many cards you don't get to see the game is incredibly i was about to say incredibly long but it is a long game and you still don't get to see uh many of the cards always great experience core worlds and there's a lot of personality in the cards i mean it's really worth emphasizing that core worlds was one of the early deck builders to really say can we use deck building as the core no pun intended of a slightly more in-depth game experience, you know, no slight to Dominion or Ascension, but can we use deck building as, as part of a more fleshed out kind of Euro style game with vaguely conquesty themes? And I think it was a great success. And I think to a large extent it and Mage Knight, it's basically just like Mage Knight are the towering successes of, of leveraging deck building in a slightly more substantial way. And I mentioned the, the personality of the cards because whenever you, you don't, change your deck a whole heck of a lot. You acquire far fewer cards in the game of Core Worlds than you might in a lot of other deck builders, but they're always satisfying to play. They have a degree of personality to them, even more so if you play with the Galactic Orders expansion. I agree with you that it is occasionally overlong. I would never play Core Worlds again with more than three players, but I absolutely think that it is one of still one of the best deck builders made. So this is designed by Andrew Parks and put out by Stronghold Games. Stay tuned for Core World's Empires. It looks as though they've turned it into like a worker placement, keeping most of the fundamental rules of Core Worlds. I'll let you know what it's like coming soon. Next time, do your homework, Walker. Yes, sir. Don't subject people to the whole, oh, we're getting together to play a game. Let me crack open the rulebook for the first time now. That That's not good. People deserve better, Walker. I, 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 didn't do, I haven't done that in a long time, Mark. Treat people, I've been, I've treat people how you want to be treated, Walker. Lessons good. learned. Lessons. I'm giving you a lessons learned token. I got to play Scout again. This time I played with the Oink Games version, which, like all Oink games, is so incredibly delightful and cute. 
You stuff a whole bunch of tokens and a deck of cards into a teeny, teeny, tiny little box. You dump everything out on the table and you have a good time. Scout is a climbing game nominally about putting on circus acts. And one of the things that the Oink Games version of Scout does is it gives every card a name. So instead of just saying, here's my run of four, five, six, you get to say, well, Kathleen is on the trampoline, Steven is on the stilts, and Victor is the one on the unicycle. And... It's a small difference, but as we say, but a little bit of extra personality can go a long, long way, whether it's in a game like Corwolds or whether it's in a game like Scout, especially since the conceit of Scout is that if you can't beat the set that somebody's played, you don't just pass like a goober, you instead get to scout one of the cards, which gives a point to the person who played the set, and now instead of just scouting some random person, you get to say, well, Victor, I bought out your contract, you're working for me now. And people say we don't engage in late roleplay. Here's the thing. Two people talk about, oh, this board game tells a story. We make stories out of everything. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but it helps when there's a little bit of personality that's been injected, as is the case of this Oink Games edition of Scout. And I had a blast with Scout again, very much like I did the first time. It is a novel take on a somewhat tired genre. I'm more than happy to play standard climbing games but again much of the time if you're playing well it leads to a static situation where everyone else just passes and you run the table which might be satisfying for the person running the table but not necessarily for everybody else furthermore most climbing games are extremely dependent on luck of the draw scout mitigates both of these factors by again this novel scouting element you literally are in a position where in some rounds you build an unbeatable play you start off with three sevens, and then it's broken up by a two, and there's another seven on top of that. So you work hard to get rid of that two. You scout another seven or, or so, and then, bam, you play your six sevens in a row, and it's eminently satisfying. It really feels good, and although there is still luck of the draw, of course, it is still a very, very quick card game where you get to feel clever, which is awesome. Scout was designed by Kei Kajino, and the Oink Games version was published in 2019. I highly recommend it. It is very, very flexible in terms of player count. I've mostly been playing it at the lower player counts, but I look forward to trying it with higher player counts. It is quick and cheerful and adorable and a blast to play. And it lets you get to tell silly stories about the various freaks that you've assembled for your freak show. What else could you possibly want? That is Scout. We got to play Dinosaur Island Roar and Write. This is another roll and write type game, but it's more of a fusion between dice, roar, uh, roll and write, and board game. Because after you do this snake draft of 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 the dice, and before you write, you do a little mini worker placement game with the two dice that you drafted. And sometimes the faces of the dice matter because you get multipliers on the dice that you picked, or sometimes it doesn't matter. The other thing that does matter is that there are the danger pips on, on the dice, like up in the small little corner. And if you want to take an action that someone else did, then you're going to have to take that danger on their die. So you can sort of lead with the three pips and sort of block that spot or make people pay if they want to take it. Thought that part was very interesting. And then you're doing the typical roll and write stuff where you're putting out dinosaur pens or they did a, a great job of incorporating the new dinosaur worlds game into this roll and write because you're putting out the pavilions, the sort of like the roller coasters and the restaurants and the merch stands and the security and the dinosaur pens. And then you're taking a tour around the park. So it incorporates all of those rules from dinosaur world in this quick roll and write game. Really enjoyed it. Wouldn't mind trying it again. 
Dinosaur Island Roll and Write, designed by Brian Lewis, David McGregor, and Marissa Masura, and put out by Pandasaurus Games. Do you still get to feed your visitors to the dinosaurs? You sure do. Awesome. The the deaths in Dinosaur Roll and Write are much more painful than they are in the in the board game. I suppose in the board game, it's a lot. It's sometimes it could be a big hit at negative points. In the roll and write, you're like destroying whole pens or losing three of the roads, and you're, it's a huge penalty. How do dinosaurs eat roads? Uh, well, you see, after they eat the people, Mark, this is how biology works. They, okay. The food goes down into the tum-tum. Uh-huh. And then... Then there's these giant piles, and you can't use the roads. Okay. I think there was a biological step missing there, Walker. But, you know, for the sake of our family-friendly writing, I'm not going to pry. Finally, Walker, do you remember party games? Nope. Don't they require more than two people? Yeah, I don't remember those. Yeah, exactly. I was able to play just one. You remember just one? I... No. Yeah, I do. That was the whole, you, you, you did solo gaming with just one person. We just talked about that a second ago. <laughs> close, close. Honestly, I think this is one of the things from COVID that I miss the most. Just the having a table full of people, you're between games, you pull out either code names or maybe a so, quick social deduction game or something like just one. And sometimes it's the highlight of the evening. And honestly, that's okay. Just One is the word game put up by Repo Production in 2018 by Ludovic Rudy and Bruno Sauter. And honestly, it's it's still a joy. The conceit is so simple. You have to clue someone into what a, what a word is. But if any two people pick the same word, they get eliminated. And obviously, the same foibles keep happening over and over again. The obvious clue is never chosen. Whereas the same esoteric clue is chosen by three other people at the table. And so at the end of the day, the person is staring at one clue and it's something like asparagus. And like, all right, what am I supposed to do with this? The other thing that we meant that I keep mentioning every time I play just one, but it keeps giving me such joy is how the rule book is going to neg you at the end of the game. It's going to have some sort of passive aggressive, smarmy, dismissive evaluation of how you did. This time we scored a total of eight, I believe, and it said, oh, that's average. Can you possibly do better? In that tone of voice, even, it was quite astounding. What what font was that, Mark? I'm, I'm just trying to get the font so then we can use that. A disappointed school marm font. Gotcha. Not to be confused with my mother's font. Gotcha. Very similar. I'm not going to make any comments about your mother. She's a classy lady. I missed just one... I miss all these party games. I look forward to some sort of halcyon future day where they still get to be pulled out as a casual thing rather than, ooh, I remember this special excitement. And that is just one. I got to play Brass Burning Him, which can be argued is number one on BGG due to the fact that no one's going to touch Gloomhaven or Pandemic Legacy in a very long time. So we'll just disregard those two and... Brass Burning Him at number three, you could say, is the number one floating wait, game. Wait, on wait, 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 wait. Your logic, your logic escapes me. Because number one is too good, we're going to ignore it. And therefore, I never said it's too good, Mark. I never said. Don't put words in my mouth. Okay, number one is I said too no well one regarded. Can touch them. No one can touch it. Uh, too well regarded. I just said. I just said too they're, they're so locked. Exactly. 
They're number one is so highly rated it might as well not be number one. It's so so highly rated by so many people. This is this is some serious logic judo. I'm gonna have to sit down and think about this for a while. Anyway, go on. I don't think those two games are going to move off those top two spots in a very long time. So let's just pretend the list starts after them. I still don't get it. <laughs> well, I'm just saying the point no, 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 of having no. sort of like... You can explain it 15 times. I'm not going to get it. The sort of the idea of having a top 10, a, an ongoing top whatever, is the fact that it floats and moves around. So, you know, games get more popular, you know, it's it floating, it moves. And the fact that those two are, are going to be so static for quite a while, I think, you know, you could say that the list starts at Brass Birmingham. Moving on, I enjoy it more and more that I play it. The first few times, it's very much a timing thing because you get two actions, two actions in Brass. And a lot of those actions that you're taking are setting the board up for the other players. And so... If in a four-player game, you could be taking two actions, putting out coal that you need or putting out iron that you need or beer that you need. And then by the time it gets back to your turn, none of that stuff exists anymore. And therefore, you're very limited to what you can do. Not so much with the coal and the iron, but the beer is a very big thing. And especially at the very end of the game, you really need to plan your last sort of six turns out. So 12 actions, you need to look around the board, see what people are going to deliver or finish off, see how much beer is going to be out there, how much you can produce that no one can access or how much is going to be left. Maybe even cut your game short, i.e. deliver all your stuff maybe in the second to last turn to, to make sure that that beer is going to be there for you to use and then just do some supplementary actions with your last few turns. All of these things make the game more enjoyable if you understand how all of that works. So Brass Birmingham is a Martin Wallace game, and the news, this newest edition has been put out by Roxley Games. If you have a chance, give it a try. I believe you'll love it. Or Age of Industry, which some contrarians insist is preferable. So true. We played Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor again. Just a two-player game. Continues to be a great cooperative puzzle. Once again, we were about to win. We had puzzled it all out. And then, of course, I threw a wrench into it. I just, you know, you know, you puzzle it all out. You say, okay, they, they have to move here next, and then we can put troops here, which will force them this way. Had, all it, had it all worked out, we we're going to win. And it's like, oh... My last turn, I don't really need to do anything. Why don't I just throw a village over here? It'll get us some more extra points. And of course, throwing that village made the bad guy veer in a totally different direction. Totally nuked all of my sights. Lost us the game. <laughs> Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor. I will always enjoy it. I will always play it. So many different factions, different abilities. Uh, the train trying to manipulate, trying to pull them into different uh, train types, uh, even going so far as to putting them on the map close to train types that you think might flip over to the ones you want and then racing over and flipping them over so you can lure them there. So this is designed by Cornelius Kremen, Powell Mazur, and Derek Sommer and put out by Nemesis Games. Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor. You know, I'm really glad that you're enjoying the game so much. You know, you pledged for the game. You were so you were looking forward to it so much. And so I'm glad that your hard-earned money could 
produce a product that's say, to your satisfaction. It, yeah, it's great. It's that feeling when an investment pays off, Mark. Yeah. When, you, when you've when you've worked hard and earned money and and invested in this game. And you game were very generous. You, you let good. me try it. It wasn't to my taste. And so I'm glad that you were able to buy it for yourself. And I'm just, you know, happy that you enjoy it. So good. And lastly for me, Clinic. Designed by Albin Venard and put out by AV Studio Games. This is you building a hospital, bringing in the patients, assigning them doctors, trying to discharge them to make money. It's a very tongue-in-cheek play on on hospitals. Did you try any of the modules? This is the funny part, Mark. I did. We did. <laughs> we did some. This we did. I'll call, I'll answer your question quickly first before I go on. We tried uh, what was it? Satellite TV. And oh my we tried goodness! All the one, we tried all the ones that were sort of like add-ons that you could purchase if you wanted to. Nothing that was like ongoing. So like uh, the level four the satellite TV and I think that was it. So, but just today, Mark, I got the Kickstarter that brought in the, the, uh, second and third expansions and the campaign book. So the campaign book is doing exactly what I wanted to. It gives you a bunch of scenarios that will slowly introduce all the modules. And then it also has a whole story campaign that you can follow and, you know, has these funny stories. I didn't read into it because you can play it two different ways where it tells you what modules to play and then you play it and then then you read the story and depending on what you actually did would modify other things. So it says you can read it first and then just sort of try to play towards that or play it and then just see what the consequences would be. This all being said, Mark... How many modules do you think there are now for clinic? <laughs> I dare not speculate. 12? 45. Oh my goodness. 45 different modular expansions. It is a crazy game, but <laughs> super fun to play. A lot of like that that being said, a lot of the a lot of the expansions are, you know, an extra floor or a slightly different piece that you can play. So they're not, you know, tons of top rules, but they are all listed in the book. And those are the games that we played this week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I have some Kickstarter news to start first. There's a game on Kickstarter right now. It's right out of Calgary. It's called Pathways. It's an interesting dexterity game, Mark. It's like a waffle board. And you're flicking crocodile discs across this waffle board. So you can see, based on the speed that you you flicked it at it's going to either you know drop in quickly or slide all the way across to the end and the designers made all these different mini games that you can play either trying to get them in the last row or the last two rows you can also get a add-on which is this large mat and he's also designed you know several mini games for that as well so tons of dexterity fun in pathways on kickstarter I would just like to clarify something because it's increasingly clear based on the reactions of our dear patrons on Discord that there's some confusion as to our the name of our support staff. Uh, people are very shocked to see Warm Boy spelled. It is W-A-R-M-B-O-Y, Warm Boy as in temperature. People assume that it's Worm Boy, W-O-R-M as in a worm. No, no, no. We would never be so harsh as to call him Worm Boy. He's a fine, upstanding, vertebrate human being. And besides, Warm Boy was his idea. Anyway, on that topic, in terms of the goings-on of the business of swag, I would just like to remind you that Swag has merch. You can find uh, a link to our store at sowronggames.com. 
you can also just go directly to soverywrongaboutgames.myspreadshop.com or .ca if you're feeling especially patriotic uh, and Canadian. I've been very, very pleased by the reception. There have been uh, pictures of people online sporting our merch. I am in uh, high-level talks now to start RuPaul's Swag Race. And by high level, I mean I would have to be high to think that anyone would be interested in that. But I'm convinced that if we keep this going, we can start a Who Wore It Better contest. All we need you to do, Walker, is to pose in your most fetching poses with with your merch. And we might be able to uh, start some polls and objectify you like like the clothes horse that you are. Man, we'd sell a lot more of those barf buckets. (laughs) Swag-branded barf buckets. Get them while they're hot. Yeah, so since you're shilling stuff out, a lot of the games I talked about during the games we played, we played on Twitch. You can join us on Twitch. We play almost all the games that I play during the week are usually live on Twitch in the mornings. And if you just want to check them out anyway, they'll be on our YouTube page under the live tab. Like Mark said, all of the stuff can be found at SoWrongGames.com. Mark, I sent you a link today about the Roman Empire. Onus Trianus. This is a, what they call a miniatures card game. So you're playing the cards down. I believe there's a game already out called Battleground. That was a fantasy version. This one is Roman legions and Celts. And it looks very interesting. It looks a lot, it looks nice and flat and straight, which I like. This (laughs) sort of manipulating stuff around. It looks like there's nice straight angles and turning cards on 90 degree angles three dimensions business three dimensions is way too many dimensions exactly so if you want to try a very cheap sort of back to rank and file miniature game this looks like it could be the way to go it is on kickstarter give it a look other upcoming games, Sidereal Confluence, Trading and Negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant, is going to get its first expansion sometime soon. It is called Sidereal Confluence Bifurcation. So they're just stringing together a whole bunch of words that most people don't use on a regular basis. Yeah, it's a marketing strategy. I have been told by people who've tried it that it is truly wild and changes the game in a very, very substantial and very positive direction. Given that I'm already a huge fan of Sidereal Confluence, I cannot wait to try Sidereal Confluence Bifurcation, coming sometime imminently. On the news of expansions, Mark, Land, Air, and Sea is getting a standalone or expandable box called Spies, Lies, and Supplies. So it already got a cartoony sort of offshoot game, and now it gets its own expansion, which I'm sure you can just mix up or play by itself. So that should be interesting. I, too, am hugely enthusiastic about Spies, Lies, and Supplies. It's just so fun to say as well. (laughs) It's so true. Osprey Games is going to be publishing a highly asymmetric Troops on a Wrap game called Crescent Moon by Stephen Mathers. One of the reasons why I'm very enthusiastic about it is, again, it saliently involves negotiation. I love conflict games where a given player is unable to pursue all of their objectives on their own steam. They are required to get the participation of other players. That's one of the things that I truly adore about Senji, and it looks like Crescent Moon has similar elements. Crescent Moon is also set during the expansion of the various Arab empires starting around the 10th century and then proceeding onward, you know, the expansion of North Africa, the expansion into Iberia, although it does seem to have a very sort of abstracted take on the history. But 
they do take a very serious take on the history because they have done their homework by all accounts. They've contacted a historian and a cultural assistant in order to make sure that they're not presenting that part of the world in a derogatory or inappropriate way. As an example, there were some graphics in the playtest version that were somewhat insensitive because they involved religious iconography in a somewhat inappropriate way. And the, uh, they were very clear to say, yes, yes, this is something that we did in playtesting, but we have gotten the feedback from our consultant, and this is not something that we would put in the final published version. It's developments like that that make me enthusiastic to see where this product is going. And Osprey is a solid publisher. I'm looking forward to trying Crescent Moon. Mark, I like Paper Dungeons, a game Richard Dar- Garfield decided he's going to throw his hat in the roll and write genre. He's putting out a game called Dungeons, Dice, and Danger which will be another sort of D&D roll-and-write game. No, so it's, three, kind it's, of interesting. it's three Ds, Walker. There's three of them. Yes, the triple Ds. Reiner Knizia's My City was, I think, a triumph for the legacy genre. I think it really was one of the best instantiation of the legacy format. It is a campaign that we completely blew through in a very, very, very quick period of time based on our enthusiasm for the game. And it also showed that what was basically within striking distance of a roll and write could be done well. Hardly surprising given the talents of Reiner Knizia. There's going to be a follow-up called My Island. Apparently it's also going to be a legacy-ish version with some of the same fundamental core conceits. It is going to be published by Cosmos sometime this year. I am very, very much looking forward to My Island by Reiner Knizia. And lastly, a game called Bot Factory. This is going to be a Vidal Lacerda game. It seems to be a bit pulled back, maybe 50 less mechanisms. 20% off the top. He's co-designing it with Jaco Quintera Martinez, and this is going to be put out by Eagle Griffin Games. I love the art for it so far, and looking forward to giving it a try. Bot Factory. I have a lot of conflicted feelings about this next bit. So, Tigers and Euphrates, which is, number one, the greatest game of all time, and number two, the highest ranked game on Board Game Geek by Reiner Knizia, the greatest game designer of all time, or at least my favorite game designer. It got kicked out briefly of the top 100 on Board Game Geek. Now, I would like to stress that I have I have two dominant modes of, uh, two dominant category of feeling that are somewhat in tension, but I have them at the same time. Number one, the ranking system is what it is, and it is nonetheless nothing more and nothing less than an agglomeration of whatever ratings people have had. So it can't be right or wrong, it just is what it is. And number two, people need to get off my lawn. Uh, this is, you know, very much in the same way that I have simultaneously the idea that gatekeeping is bad and that there that any member of the hobby needs to be treated with the same degree of respect and appreciation that people who just want to play Roland rights have every bit of right to exist as people who just want to play heavy consoms or people who want to play uh, everything in between. That is entirely legitimate. But by the same token, I think that people should get off my lawn. So uh, I'm going to try to work through some of these feelings. Uh, now, suffice to say that this, the announcement of this, which got a lot of traffic on Twitter and a lot of other places on BoardGameGeek, this caused a sort of backlash. So a whole bunch of people went on to rate Tigers Euphrates highly. It's back in the top 100. Uh, because this was the last game of Reiner Knizia that was in the top 100. It's back in the top one. At the time of recording, it is at 98 of 100. Who knows how long this is, this is going to last? This seems like an artificial inflation to my eyes. But again... The ratings are nothing more and nothing less than an agglomeration of all the ratings. So there's whether it's artificial or organic, who cares? I'm going to probably record a an editorial over the course of the coming week to try to work through my various gatekeeper authority versus inclusive 
welcoming thoughts on this and specifically about the ranking systems and Knizia's legacy and a whole bunch of other things about the history of this marvelous hobby and how it doesn't matter to a lot of people. So suffice to say, I have many, many feelings about Knizia probably leaving the top 100 again soon. That's what I was trying to talk to me before, how the ranking system does not matter. <laughs> sure, but at the same time, you wanted to revise the ranking system in a way that still doesn't quite make sense to me. Please don't try to explain it again. I just need to go I will not. and think about it. And with that, my lovelies, that is going to do it for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. You can find all of our contact information at SoWrongGames.com slash contact. SoWrongGames.com being our marvelous website, which is being maintained, of course, by the equally marvelous Warm Boy, W-A-R-M-B-O-Y, not Worm Boy, who was an extra in the Dune movie. I think he's a member, I think he's a member of the guild. Good guy, good guy. His breath is very warm. (laughs) We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickey. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Dear listeners, thank you once again for joining us for Masterpiece Theater this week, as ever, in honor of His Grace, the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent Duke of Diesel, Esquire OBE, we will be reviewing Clue. Walker, what do you have to say about Clue? Well, Mark, I think we should address this off the top. The water pipe in the room, as it is put. <laughs> um, Clue has aged well, in some cases, and aged extremely poorly in others. It is extremely misogynistic and extremely homophobic. That being said, like I said, I think it still has aged well in other ways. It is very funny. You could tell that the cast had a good time filming it. It looked as though it was like a one-week project with them sprinting around the house madly having all kinds of fun. They did a great job trying to force this very light sort of guess the cards in the pouch game into a into a movie. So I think the adaptation is a bit of a work of genius. I'd forgotten how much the movie kind of sort of parodies the actual board game. Because in the various endings, yes, of course, Clue is infamous for having multiple endings. When you went to go see it in the theater back in the day, uh, parenthetically for people unaware, a theater is a place where you would go to spend $5 for a soda, and then you would pour the soda on the floor to make sure that it would be very, very sticky for the future clients. You would get one of those three endings at random. And now in the modern iterations, you just get all three endings back to back to back, which is probably the better way to watch it. But during the denouement, which in classic mystery fashion has the has people explaining what actually went down, they're running from room to room. 
as the narrator is explaining what's happening in various rooms, they run back and forth. That's exactly what happens in the board game for no earthly reason. Anytime you make an accusation, I don't know if you remember this, all player pieces get yanked to the place where the accusation's being done. And so I was watching this thinking, wow, they actually made like a funny sight gag and like they kept the energy up of the ending of the movie precisely because of this weird arbitrary thing that happens in the board game. That is how you do an adaptation. That is a genius of transitioning from one medium to another, especially since, I will stress, in addition to the fact that a lot of the jokes have aged very poorly in the representation of women and, and one character is ostensibly gay, uh, although Michael McKeon, I was I was wounded to see Michael McKeon do that because he's a national treasure and a, a marvelous, marvelous actor. But uh, the middle of the movie, let's be frank, the middle of the movie, very bad. It, it drags like a beast. Yeah, yeah. The first 20 minutes where they're just setting things up is fine. <laughs> Uh, the last 30 minutes is amazing. The middle sort of 30 minutes where they split up and just search rooms, dull as dirt. That's that's what they call filler. Yeah, exactly. No kidding. And and, and, and I'm blown away like at the cast. Like Christopher 100%. Lloyd, Madeline Kahn, Tim Curry. 100%. Ridiculous. Madeline Kahn, uh, I, I just do not think she is recognized for the master that she was. I agree. I had completely forgotten how talented she is and how great she is in this movie and how she just makes a meal out of every line. It's marvelous. I I, I would say the same thing about Michael McKeon a lot uh, because again, there are a lot of jokes that, that really, as you say, don't age well. I want, I have to imagine that someone behind the screen, uh, that that maybe the director was like telling Michael McKean to ham it up more, but he's like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Because his his performance is great, despite the fact that sometimes there are jokes at his character's expense that are not cool. Uh, but he manages nonetheless to do it with a certain degree of, of not dignity. There's no dignity in this movie. The movie, after all, starts with some poop jokes. Uh, let us not forget this. But uh, look, I, I think it's it's mostly I'm struck at what genius they did of adaptation. This is how you do an adaptation. This is how you transcend a medium and go into a different venue while at the same time referencing the original in surprisingly subtle ways. The secret passages, the weird setup, uh, and of course the running from room to room. Highly recommended. Clue is, albeit dragging in the middle, a fascinating little artifact. And I'm wondering if that that poop joke at the beginning was sort of like a sort of calling card of the cast and the crew saying, <laughs> we were given a lot of money to make this board game a movie, but let's <laughs> guess Maybe. what it's going to be. This is going to be a pile of crap. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. That's uh, that's perhaps a, a conspiracy theory on rank with my vision of the director telling Michael McKeon to be more offensive. Uh, but <laughs> it's, it's possible. It's tough to say. If you ever want to see Madeline Kahn... Maybe at her best, either check out Yellowbeard or even probably better, Sherlock Holmes' younger brother, because it has my favorite actor in it, Gene Wilder. Fabulous movie, Sherlock Holmes' younger brother. Check it out. Thank you for the recommendation. And with that, dear listeners, we close out another award-eligible segment of Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. Thank you very, very much for joining us, and we hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.